You're listening to a special episode of the Offscript Podcast. Special episodes happen every other week and are generally shorter feature interviews or talks that we've previously recorded at Springtide events and sometimes touch on more current events in politics. This week we're heading back in time to the very first public event Springtide ever hosted. It was September of 2013 and we were right in the middle of a provincial election. We held an event called the After Party, a discussion on the future of parliamentary democracy in Canada. We asked our guests, all current and former politicians, to talk about the role they see for political parties in the future of Canadian democracy. There were four speakers at this event. Brent Rathgeber, who was elected as a Conservative MP from Alberta, but had recently chosen to sit in the House of Commons as an Independent. Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party and an MP in British Columbia. Graham Steele, who we've heard from lots in this podcast, but was speaking at this event as a sitting cabinet minister. And Danny Graham, the former Liberal leader and former MLA for Halifax Citadel. In this special episode, we'll give you a chance to hear the opening remarks of all of the speakers. And in the upcoming special episode, aired in two weeks, we'll share the discussion period that was moderated by then CBC Main Street Halifax host Stephanie Demet. So we're privileged tonight to have four panelists who were not only willing to put their names forward to run for public office at some point in their lives, but were also willing to participate in this discussion with us. Our panel of speakers includes people with experience in both federal and provincial politics. Uh, They're from all across the political spectrum. Among them, they have experience as backbenchers, cabinet ministers, and party leaders. So we're really fortunate tonight to have this group with us, and it's my pleasure to introduce them to you. And I'll start down at the end. This is Brent Rathgaber. He's the independent member of parliament for the riding of Edmonton, St. Albert. He was elected in 2008 as a conservative, but he left the conservative caucus earlier this year. Out of concerns. So it's obvious what a lot of people in the room think already. So he left uh, out of concerns around governmental transparency, citing that his constituents demand better. Before he became a federal politician, he served as a member of the Alberta legislature, and before he entered politics, he worked as a litigator. We're pleased to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. I'd like to thank uh, Mark and all the members of the Springtide Collective for inviting me here to beautiful Halifax and Dalhousie. I understand you have an election going on, so this couldn't be more timely here at the birthplace of uh, responsible government, Joseph Howe, 1848. Friends, every four years or so, citizens elect a group of themselves to represent them at all respective levels of government. The expectation is simple, that the elected officials will provide representation, that is, they will pass appropriate laws and that they will hold their government to account. The bureaucracy, i.e. the permanent government, does not represent taxpayers. Their job is to design and administer government programs and services. It is the elected parliament, the legislatures and municipal councils, who must represent citizens and taxpayers if citizens and taxpayers are to be represented. It is the elected bodies that must hold government to account, failing which government, by definition, will become unaccountable. Responsible government, born right here in Nova Scotia, is the essence of parliamentary accountability of the executive. It means that ministers of the Crown are accountable to Parliament for their decisions and for the performance of their departments. It means that a government can govern as long, but only so long, as it has the confidence of the democratically elected Assembly. Now, what is implicit in this concept of responsible government is that the executive is comprised of, but is independent and distinguishable from, the members of the legislature. Canadians elect their legislatures. We do not elect our governments. Our constitutional convention, which include the concept of responsible government, mandates that the Governor-General will ask the leader of the party with the most support in Parliament, or the Lieutenant Governor in the Assembly, to form a government. But make no mistake, the government is chosen, it is not elected. As an illustration, Christy Clark, when first elected as leader of the BC Liberal Party's party, was sworn in as the, the Premier of British Columbia, notwithstanding that she did not at that moment hold a seat in the BC Legislature. She served as Premier of British Columbia for several months before seeking and eventually obtaining a seat in a by-election. Then, in April's spring election, her party won a majority of the seats in Victoria, but she was defeated in her own Vancouver seat. She subsequently again was re-elected in a Kelowna seat in a by-election. But throughout it all, she remained the head of the government. Her premiership was uninterrupted, even though she was not an MLA. Two times that she was premier. Now that brings us to the present-day conflict between balancing the role of a member of parliament to represent one's constituent versus a different role for the member of parliament that he or she serve as a mouthpiece for the party under whose banner he or she was elected. 
Parliamentary reformers such as myself and Elizabeth believe that a member of parliament should represent their constituents in Ottawa, not represent Ottawa to their constituents. However, too much freelancing will inevitably put a member of parliament offside his party leadership, and adjectives like maverick, rebel, rogue, and I've been called them all, will be applied to individuals who go offside. They will find themselves sitting on obscure committees or those with heavy workloads but no profile. They will find their names excluded from, from sought-after parliamentary junket lists. Now, I have no doubt that in the modern era of politics with the 24-hour news cycles, bloggers, and other social media of communication, the messaging is increasingly becoming more important to political advisors than the soundness of policy, and I say that with some regret, but I think it's true. Accordingly, any straying from approved party messaging is extremely frowned upon by political operatives and probably correctly in their assessment jeopardizes the electability or re-electability of that party. The question then becomes, as a backbench member of parliament, to what extent do I subject myself to their attempts at control? Speaking out on behalf of one's constituents and holding the government to account is the traditional and constitutional role of the member of parliament. Accordingly, comments that suggest a backbench MP should simply be an extension of the communication branch of PMO, the Prime Minister's office, is really more of the novel and I would suggest radical suggestion. Moreover, and in a university we all know this, fulsome debate is healthy and a free exchange of ideas should be encouraged even amongst like-minded caucus members. A unified caucus is not dependent on a unity of opinion. Now I've been vocal for at least the last two years before I left the caucus, that, that Parliament's role and a member of Parliament's role is to hold the government to account. Even when I was a member of the Conservative Party caucus, I challenged the government on supply management, on ministerial limousines, on ministerial respect for taxpayers and in their expense accounts, and on the protracted time scheduling for reducing the deficit and paying down the $650 billion national debt. Did these criticisms, did these criticisms of my own government make me disloyal? Did they make me a maverick? Certainly not. I absolutely disagree with the notion that loyalty to government or to party requires that one blindly and without thinking support every detail that a government or party says or does. The constructive criticism of government cannot possibly be the equivalent of mutiny or even disloyalty. In fact, I would suggest that lackeys, sycophants, and yes-men are less valuable to a government's performance than the constructive critics who demonstrate their loyalty by constantly challenging the government to continually perform even better. As the yes man will blindly cheer at imminent policy derailment, the constructive critic, not shy of speaking truth to power, does the government that he serves a huge favor by advising his colleagues of the proposed policy's shortcomings. As an illustration, last year's proposed legislation on, on electronic surveillance, you may recall this, the government introduced its internet spy bill with much fanfare, but civil libertarians, academics, and the media were much less enthusiastic about the prospect of having private emails intercepted. However, it was not until conservative backbenchers such as John Williamson from your neighboring province of New Brunswick started speaking publicly and that I started blogging on the matter that the government decided to first put the brakes on the problematic legislation, eventually wisely choosing to abandon it altogether. While syncophants and yes-men continue to make hyperbolic statements and unfair characterizations regarding the opponents of the legislation, you're either with us or you're with the child predators, it was the constructive critics inside the caucus who were ultimately responsible for the legislation shelving. Now, the current scandal of the executive and the former chief of staff to the prime minister gifting $90,000 to a sitting legislature in an alleged effort to make the expense scandal go away and salvage the reputation of the conservative appointment represents an obvious and disturbing lack of separation between the executive and legislative branches of the Canadian government. But what Canadians do not appreciate is that in the Ottawa bubble, this lack of separation happens every day. The executive meddling in the affairs of the elected legislature, the affairs of the members of parliament, and even parliamentary committees. If you followed my, de my uh, departure from the Conservative caucus, you will know that government members, Conservative members, were instructed by PMO to go in and gut my transparency bill. The executive, over a generation, has grown much too dominant and the parliament much too weak, at times subservient. Sadly, this has evolved to the point that the executive or the government regards the legislative branch or parliament as an inconvenience and frequently without respect. 
prorogations to avoid a confidence vote, and 50 time allocations in a single parliamentary session is convincing of a government that would prefer to govern by fiat, by order in council, and by executive order than be accountable and answerable to an elected parliament. Now, Canada, for a variety of historical reasons, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of them tonight, has developed a party discipline that is beyond that experienced by most other functional democracies. The U.S. Congress frequently passes legislation passed on bipartisan support. We saw bipartisan support New Year's Eve on a budget bill to avoid a fiscal cliff, and recently bipartisan opposition defeated President Obama's legislative attempts to extend background checks on gun owners. I make no opinion on the soundness of either of those pieces of legislation. I only point them out to you as high-profile examples of the U.S. Congress working in, a bi in an, an effective and functional bipartisan manner. Western dem European democracies, democracies similarly have matured to the point that a policy disagreement within a party is not the making of a constitutional crisis or the unmaking of a government or even a party. Last month, late last month in Britain, conservative backbenchers joined with opposition MPs to defeat a government motion to intervene in the Syrian civil war. Yet the government continued to govern and the world continues to rotate on its axes. Those who support ironclad party discipline and controlling messaging seem to want to make Parliament the equivalent of bad theatre. People such as myself with limited acting ability are handed talking points written by staffers. They read them with no actual debate ever taking place. And you've seen this, what, a thousand times or maybe yes, more? Yes, yes. <laughs> One group of individuals serve as the playwrights and MPs are reduced to mere actors reading from prepared text. Moreover, this perceived lack of efficacy of the individual member of parliament and lack of real debate in the House of Commons is, in my view, the largest contributing factor to the complete lack of decorum in the current House of Commons. With votes being determined by the party leadership and whips, there's no purpose for members in following a, a debate because they'll be instructed on how to vote. But worse, we reduce the House of Commons to the equivalent of the U.S. Electoral College. Under my analogy... Parliament would meet after an election to determine which leader has the most support in Parliament, and thereafter, all votes would break strictly on party lines once it is known how the respective leaders are voting. It seems wastefully expensive, especially for small-c conservatives such as myself, for the equivalent of the U.S. Electoral College to meet 27 weeks per year, having its members travel great distances to do so if its only function is to provide unequivocal support for the respective leaders. It is indeed sad when a member of parliament is reduced to a mere automaton, dependent and loyal to his or her party, above loyalty to him, him or herself or to his constituents. The result of an executive becoming increasingly unanswerable and therefore unaccountable is that Canadian taxpayers and Canadian citizens are increasingly shut out of the decision-making process. Government listening only to its political advisors and its bureaucrats means that citizens are shut out, and that's bad for democracy and it's bad for governance and ultimately leads to bad policy. Our system would benefit greatly if the experience and qualifications of the members of Parliament were more strongly emphasized, or at least were emphasized, in the policy-making process, and if members of Parliament paid as much deference to their constituents as they do to their whips. Alternatively, we turn the clock back to 175 years where we once again revisit a system where an all-too-power executive is accountable to no one other than itself. Responsible government born here in Halifax was the solution to said problem 175 years ago when the governor and his executive council were not accountable to the people's legislature. Libertarians, and I remember the first time I called myself a libertarian in the house and you laughed at me. I didn't laugh at you. I was horrified. It's all right. I, I have such respect for this man. We're just teasing each other, but I re I'll, I'll talk later. I, I, I've never laughed at you, Brent. Never. You yeah. said you never heard. You never heard anyone refer to themselves as a libertarian. In the <laughs> house, yeah. No, you were the first. Libertarians believe that the greatest threat to freedom is the unchecked concentration of power. Even well-intentioned leaders must be subject to checks and balances. Holding to account vets bad legislation and improves good legislation. Holding to account constantly challenges the government of the day to perform even better. Holding to account makes mediocre executives better, good cabinets great, and defeats bad governments. However, if you consider yourself to be part of the government, as many CPC, conservative backbenchers do, you cannot possibly provide checks and balances to the government. You cannot be a meaningful check upon yourself. You cannot simultaneously be cheerleader and constructive critic. Having a democratically elected chamber hold to account the appointed executive is the essence of responsible government and is fundamental to both democratic accountability and good governance. 
Had the Conservative Party of Canada caucus and Parliament genuinely done a better job in holding the current government to account, the government presumably would be performing better. The current government would benefit from a Parliament that actually holds it to account. Thank you for inviting me and I look forward to your questions. And thank you, Brent Rathgaber. Sitting beside Brent is Elizabeth May, the MP for the riding of Saanich Gulf Islands in British Columbia. She is the leader of the Green Party in Canada. Shortly after she was elected Green Party leader, she wrote a book uh, about this theme this evening called Losing Confidence, Power, Politics, and the Crisis in Canadian Democracy. She is the only Green Party MP in the House but somehow was voted Parliamentarian of the Year in 2012 by her colleagues in the House of Commons, Elizabeth May. Thanks, Stephanie. And um, I really uh, echo virtually everything that Brent just said. I've been asked to address the question of what it's like to be a parliamentarian, what I've learned from the experience. I want to start with a pop quiz just for fun. Think about the answer as I read out the following, and I'm hoping you're all you know, uh, familiar with the Canadian Constitution. So just think about which of these things is not mentioned in the Canadian Constitution. Political parties, the Prime Minister's office, or first-past-the-post voting system. All of them are none of them. None of them are listed in the Canadian Constitution, right? So what we have is an abomination. Uh, you've heard what Brent said. I will go farther and say what, we, what has happened through a, initially a gradual and incremental centralization of power around a prime minister's office, which does not exist in our Constitution as an entity. It's not like in the United States Constitution, where they had a revolution, decided that there had to be checks and balances on power, an executive, the White House... Congress, the judiciary, able to exercise controls on each other. We are Westminster parliamentary tradition. And in Westminster parliamentary democracy, the essence of the check on power is self-restraint. It's that those people who are elected have respect for the traditions, understand the role of parliament, and understand that the role of every member of parliament is to represent their constituents and to hold the executive administration of the government to account. We now have a system so completely off track that it is, in essence, an elected dictatorship punctuated by changes of dictator. This is not Westminster parliamentary democracy. It is not. Now, the, the morphing started, and it was a light change. Initially, it was a light change. And I, I wrote about it in my last book, but I interviewed the people who were around at the time, and Pierre Trudeau, on becoming prime minister, thought, this is odd. I can have my minister of finance and my minister of health deciding, independent of each other, to hold a major policy announcement the same day. That doesn't seem really good. We ought to coordinate. When he first started appointing people within the prime minister's office and building it up, by the way, under Lester Pearson, Tom Kent, who was principal secretary to Lester Pearson, described the PMO as a handful of secretaries and stenographers. So it became built up around the time of, of Pierre Trudeau, and a young Tom Axworthy reported that he had once gone to Justice Minister John Turner with a request from the Prime Minister's office. And John Turner turned on him and said, you go back and tell the Prime Minister I don't want any junior G-men from the PMO showing up here and tell me what to do. Well, every Prime Minister since has increased the budget control and centralization of power of the Prime Minister's office. And Stephen Harper has taken it right off the, off the tracks. The, the level of control in PMO right now is entire. The Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister control not only all the decisions of cabinet, all the decisions of government, the muzzling of scientists, the slashing of programs, even down to bringing down the wall that used to exist between the partisan decision makers of the Prime Minister's staff and the nonpartisan professional civil servants on the other side of the barrier in the Privy Council office, the people in civil service who were supposed to provide nonpartisan evidence-based research, the political side could decide whether to take it or not, but the, the wall is down to such an extent now that the $10 million a year budget of the Prime Minister's office for a bunch of partisan hacks feel self-empowered to phone up individual people within the civil service at any level and chew them out, tell them what to do. 
I've heard of people who've been told as lawyers in the Department of Justice, we want a legal opinion and this is what we want you to say. <laughs> the situation is monstrous. I had a very, uh, for those of you who are interested, Senator Lowell Murray, a Cape Bretoner and former progressive conservative, had a very timely piece. And, and thinking about tonight's panel, I pulled some quotes from it. It was in September 11th Globe and Mail. Because the point here is not partisan. The point here is what will happen you know, when Stephen Harper is no longer prime minister and a different party takes over. It won't be fundamentally democratic unless we fix the fact that the institutions themselves are being dismantled and power is concentrated in the prime minister's office. What Lowell Murray wrote was, quote, the Harper governments, and he put that in quotes, trademark, and he put that in brackets, literal, because they have tried to trademark the words Harper government. The Harper government's trademark innovation has been to superimpose on the existing centralized system a tightly run communications regime in which message control is the very essence of governance. Under this system, even strong ministers often become passengers on their own departmental ships, their destination and course set by remote control from Message Central, which he put capital M, capital C, at PCO, PMO. Parliament is not even in the picture. At its worst, the system makes ciphers of ministers, reducing from substantive to symbolic the autonomy authority, and accountability they should exercise. The situation is, and I, 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 it's not a word of exaggeration, extremely worrying. Ned Franks, professor emeritus from Queen's University, when Stephen per Harper prorogued the second time, said we can now refer to him as King Stephen I of Canada. And as much as I yearn for his uh, retirement, uh, you know, out of a, an impulse of nothing but kindness and charity towards the man. He clearly needs a break. But uh, I don't want a King Justin or a King Thomas. What we have here is a system that requires, actually, it requires resuscitation. Democracy in this country is close to comatose, and it won't be restored unless respect for the institutions is restored, unless Canadians, in a nonpartisan way, understand that Parliament is supreme. The Prime Minister reports to Parliament. Individual members of Parliament have a right to ask for and receive any fiscal information we require, not have the Parliamentary Budget Officer having to go to court to get information and still be stonewalled because Deputy Ministers have been told by PMO they can't release the information. Parliament is supreme. Members of Parliament work to report to and work for their constituents. And as leader of the Green Party of Canada, I can't wait to when I have a few more Green MPs so that we can prove the point <laughs> that we will never whip votes. My biggest shock, Stephanie, and I'll close on this, the biggest shock for me since being elected, since I'm very familiar with government, I worked in the Mulroney government, I'm, I love Parliament, I knew a lot of our parliamentary rules and traditions before being elected. The biggest shock to me was discovering that it wasn't just the occasional vote that was whipped, but that my friends and other parties, for every single vote, were handed an instruction sheet of how to vote on every single vote. All the Conservatives received their sheet, all the New Democrats received their sheet. And by the way, the New Democrat members of the House of Commons are showing more party discipline than even the Conservatives. They don't veer from what they're told to do. And the Liberals received their talking points. And even my friends in the Bloc, the, the four benighted members who were first elected in 2011, received their vote oui, vote non. And one of my friends, the Liberal Party, turned around one day as he looked at his instruction sheets and said, gee, Elizabeth, how do you know how to vote? <laughs> and, <laughs> I swear to God, and I feel so badly about this, I'm, yeah, I'm sure, I'm the only member of Parliament who reads all the legislation before we vote. Oh, and maybe Brent does, but I know that when you're told how to vote, <laughs> when you're told how to vote, it isn't a good career move to read it and decide for yourself if you think you can think that this is good policy, that this is good legislation. We have to restore democracy in Canada. We are not in a war so people don't know that you have to sign up to save democracy. 
You know, in other generations, people died because they were told we've got to go to war and protect democracy. Right now, it's being stolen from us in plain sight, and we sit back and think, oh, I don't like watching Question Period. It's so awful, I'm going to change the channel. Don't change the channel. Get out and vote and make sure that we debate what's happening. It's ha- by the way, in Nova Scotia, it was under Rodney McDonald that they changed the system. So deputy ministers stopped reporting through their minister and reported straight to the premier's office. And when Daryl Dexter came in, the system stayed the same. We've got to fix the system and stop centralizing power and empower MPs to work for their constituents, not for the backroom boys in their party leadership, spin doctor, psychopathic war rooms. Thank you. Sitting here beside me is Graham Steele, who has been the MLA for Halifax Fairview since 2001. He's been elected four times. He has decided not to run in the current provincial election. He was the Minister of Finance for Nova Scotia's first ever NDP government and has been the Minister of Economic and Rural Development and Tourism since June of this year. He's now writing a book about his experience in politics. Graham Steele. Writing a book is hard. Yeah, I just finished. It came out today. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. I want to. I want to thank the Springtide Collective for inviting us all uh, to be here today. I, I, I was actually asked. It's got to be several months ago now. And I actually, seriously thought about backing out once the provincial election was called, because I think it's a, one of the signs of the partisanship of uh, the current political system that I'm afraid that because. As I sit here tonight, I'm the, I am a minister in a government that is running to be reelected. that anything that I say tonight might be uh, attributed to the premier, attributed to the government, that if I say anything the least bit interesting, it could become an issue in the election campaign. And so I want to assure you all that I specifically deny that I'm going to say anything relevant or interesting tonight. <laughs> And, and we'll see. There's somebody in this room who has an interest in, in taking what I say and misquoting it and trying to make an election issue out of it. And I guess you can all judge for yourselves if that actually happens. Okay, so by way of background for me, uh, I've been a member of two parties in my lifetime. I was once a liberal. I've been a member of the Nova Scotia NDP since 1991. I have worked for the NDP caucus office as a staff person. I've been an NDP MLA since 2001, and I've been a cabinet minister in an NDP government since 2009. Now, with, so because I've been working in daily politics for 15 years, three as a staffer, 12 as an MLA, I have um, a really ambivalent view towards political parties. I've seen them at their best. I've seen them at their worst. Uh, They're complex institutions in a complex political system. And so I can can argue both sides. I can go either way. I can give you examples of how they're great. I can give you examples of how they're terrible. But tonight, uh, especially because I had some idea of where the other panelists might be coming from, I'm going to actually spend most of my time defending political parties. Now, I'm not going to go all the way and say that everything's just fine because it's not. But I I want to talk about the upside of political parties, uh, things that you don't often hear. And the main thing is that political parties give structure and predictability to the political process. And it's just like, now I know, before anybody objects, uh, I'm going to use a sports analogy, and I know politics is not sports. I know that. But still, it's, it's like if you go to a hockey game or a soccer game, and there's no teams, and you just put good players on the ice, and you just go and watch to see what happens. And you know what? There might be some beautiful plays break out once in a while, But just as likely as that, you're going to get people colliding with each other, working at cross-purposes. You don't know which goal they're shooting for. At one point, it's that goal, and another time, it's that goal. And it's just one big mass of confusion with a few spots of beauty. That's why we don't go to those kind of games. That's why that's not the kind of sports events 
that we like. Now, let me, let me finish that where I started, which is to say I know politics is not sports. It's about making good public policy decisions for the people of the province and the people of the country. But I think there's a point there, is that we get more done when we act in teams. And that's why as long as there have been democracy, like-minded people have gotten together in looser or tighter coalitions because it's easier to get done the things you want to get done if you form yourself into parties. Now, parties are composed of broadly like-minded people. Not entirely like-minded, of course, but broadly speaking, you join a party because you think you're going to find like-minded people in that party. So naturally, we're going to vote the same way most of the time because the reason I'm a New Democrat is because I believe that other New Democrats are going to agree with me most of the time. So when I stopped being a liberal um, in another province and moved to Nova Scotia, and suddenly the Liberal Party wasn't talking about the issues that mattered to me. The NDP was. And so that's why I joined the NDP, because here in this province, that seemed to be where I was most likely to find people who thought like I did. Now, because of that, I have rarely, in 12 and a half years as an MLA, felt like I have been whipped to vote a way that I didn't want to vote. In fact, in my entire time in the legislature, 12 and a half years, hundreds, maybe thousands of votes, I can recall only four times where an MLA voted against their party or, or, or voted a different way. And one of them was me, right? And, and, but there, that's a whole other story for another day because it took years to work up to it and I felt the consequences of it for years after. And if you want to know the story about that, because most of you probably don't even remember, um, if you want to know the story, you're going to have to buy my book. <laughs> wow. By the way, somebody at the front here published a book today. Yeah. Stephanie Domet. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, sec it's a novel. My second book. Yeah. Sec second novel from Stephanie. And what's it called, Stephanie? It's called Falsy Downsies, but enough about <laughs> me. <laughs> Let's talk more about Parliament. All right. So why, why do I think that it's normal and desirable for elected representative to vote with a party? First of all, most voters, I'm going to say something. This is going to shock you, and there could be a deep intake of breath, but here we go. Most voters are not voting for the individual candidate. Okay? Look, the first time I ran for office, there might have been six people in my constituency who knew who I was. Okay? I was a complete and utter unknown non entity. Uh, the reason, but I won with 60% of the vote. Why? Because people just fell in love with me and my winning personality? No. It's because my area, the constituency had been represented by the NDP for a long time. They loved the previous MLAs that they'd had. The previous one, Eileen O'Connell, had just recently passed away. That's why there was a by-election. They loved the work that she did. They loved the work that Alexa McDonough did. Some people liked my party. Some people liked my leader. But the point was almost nobody knew who I was. So when I went to the legislature, I was under no illusion about whether they had voted for me. They had voted for something else. Uh, they had voted for, in, sh in short, for my party. Now, if I didn't want to be part of a party, I could run as an independent, and I would be crushed, like all independents are in Nova Scotia. In the last 30 years, I can think of exactly two people who, were, who ran and, and were elected as independents. And it was in the 1980s, and it was Paul McEwen and Billy Joe McLean. Federally, Bill Casey. Right, I'm talking provincially oh. now. I'm talking provincially now. So ran and won as independents. And Bill, Bill's another a good case as well. So these are big, larger-than-life personalities. I'm sure Danny will agree. Paul McEwen, Billy Joe McLean great big larger-than-life personalities of Nova Scotia politics, and Bill Casey became that as well because of the reason why he left the Conservative caucus. 
But it's only in those very, very exceptional cases that you can run and win as an independent. Most independents who run in Nova Scotia get a few hundred votes at the most. And so, and so those of us who get elected have to go there with some humility about what people have voted for. Even in my last election, the f- I'm four elections in. Anybody who's following politics uh, by this time knows who I am. It, I'm still aware of the fact that when I'm the doorstep, what people are attracted to is my leader, my party, and some are now voting for me because I'm better known than I'm used to be, but I'm under no illusion that people are sending me to Province House here in Halifax because they're voting for me regardless. If I'd, wa- if I'd run for a different party or as an independent, which I think is a real test, there is not the slightest doubt in my mind that I would have been defeated. So there's got to be something more to it than saying that people are just voting for me. So when new members come to the legislature, I have to laugh a little bit when suddenly they fall in love with themselves and their own opinions, and they don't give enough weight to the real reason that most of them are there, which is their leader, their party, their party history, because that's what the voters were voting for. Second thing, second reason why I think it's normal and desirable that people should vote with their party most of the time, it's once you get to the legislature or parliament, you find out that modern government is incredibly complex. Again, that's another story for another day about the vast range of subjects that are covered by legislation. Elizabeth says she reads all the legislation. There's, uh, it's, it's crazy the amount of legislation, the complexity of it, the only sensible way to deal with it is to divide up the work amongst your team, and then you've got to trust your team so that you take responsibility for certain kinds of bills and other people take responsibility for other kinds of bills, and you just have to trust your team so that when a bill comes to the floor of the House which you haven't read and somebody on your team says you should vote for this because you may not have read it, you may not understand every part of it, but you still vote for it. Because it's the only sensible way to divide up the work. If I were sitting in the House as an independent, the reality is I would have to sit out most votes because, frankly, I wouldn't understand most of the legislation that came before the House, which covers an incredible range of topics, some in great depth. Okay, third reason um, third reason why I think people should normally vote with their party, and this, this comes out of some international work that I've done uh, that's really struck me, is... Um, this could be another intake of breath moment, Stephanie. Um, political parties help keep politics clean. <laughs> okay, and you say... Yeah. That, was, that was not my neutral face. And you either. say, what, what, are ta- what is he talking about? Okay, what would happen is, and those of us who've been in politics for a while knows this, is that without parties, you'd have a bunch of individuals going out and trying to get the best deal they can for themselves, for their district. And it's just naive to think that most representatives are open to persuasion on purely policy grounds. So party discipline helps keep their hands clean, helps give them some backbone when the going gets tough. And just to give you an example of how this actually works in other countries... In Bangladesh, where I had the, the, uh, the opportunity to work within the last year, it is actually written into the Constitution. An elected member of their parliament is not permitted to vote against their party. So not only is it not done, not only is it frowned upon, it is unconstitutional. Why? Because they had a history of people selling their votes crossing the floor immediately after being elected. Basically, it became, let's make a deal after an election. So in the Constitution of Bangladesh, it is forbidden to vote against your own party. Now, we may say that's an extreme, but here you can bet that if we had a bunch of independents in our house, people would be making deals. I will vote for your budget if you pave this road. If you build a hospital over here, I will support that piece of legislation. You vote for me over here, I'll vote for you over there. That's the way it works. So actually, party discipline helps keep the process clean. So those are some of the reasons why I think parties bring a lot to the table. But look, let's be frank, I worry too. I worry 
Um, but I'm going to phrase it more as questions um, than anything else. Why is it that our elected representatives vote together more often than in most of the rest of the world? That all by itself should cause us to wonder and ask questions. Why is it that the best debates happen behind closed doors in a caucus meeting? What is the quality of a democracy where the best debates are not open to the general public? And there, there are some great debates in party caucuses. <coughs> Why is it that we've taken what is generally a good idea, which is like-minded people can and should work together, and turned it into... Uh, what the other speakers have talked about, which is everybody must always be on the same script all the time. Why can't there be something a little bit more in the middle? Why have we taken this good idea and taking it too far? Why have our political parties essentially turned into fundraising and election machines rather than vehicles for developing good public policy? Why do we have the system we have of party financing when party Political party financing is at the root of a lot of corruption around the world. What's the answer to all of these questions? I don't know. I wish I knew. Thank you very much. And finally, sitting beside Elizabeth is Danny Graham, the former leader of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party, former MLA for this very riding in which we sit, Halifax Citadel. He is the chair of a new organization called Envision Nova Scotia. It aims to support greater involvement of citizens in shaping the direction and vision of Nova Scotia. He currently serves as a special advisor at the law firm McGinnis Cooper. This is Danny Graham. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, it's been about eight years since I've been in a public political forum. Um, and listening to the oratory of my colleagues um, uh, leads to my heart quickening, me saying to myself, I want to get back in. <laughs> and there's another part of me that says, I really don't want to get back in. <laughs> and I left out the funny parts that they so easily come to. And then I remembered, I'm not really funny. So um, I want to share with you the perspective of somebody who is in politics for only about three and a half years um, and who has been out for eight years. Unlike my colleagues, um, I've been in your seat more than I've been in their seat for the last little while. Um, I'm honored to be on a panel with them, and I um, have followed what they've done, particularly Elizabeth and Graham, uh, much more closely over the years and uh, respect these colleagues tremendously. And I'm mindful of the wisdom that's already in the room. I want to congratulate uh, Mark and the others at Springtide for hosting this conversation. I, I hope that it's the first of many conversations like this because we need so much more of this, and I'll try to make that point as we go along. My comments are going to touch on, uh, and we were asked in the... Um, in the notes we received, to consider our personal reflections about our experience. And for me, in relation to the conversation that we're having this evening, there were three wake-up calls that I've experienced in my time uh, in public life. And I'd like to share some of those uh, with you. But before I begin, I'd like to put my cards on the table about where I stand with respect to democratic renewal more generally, which I think is the, the vital uh, discussion that we need to have. While innovation has occurred across the sectors of science and technology and medicine and business all across the world, it has propelled us in so many ways, I believe that the institutions and processes of democracy in Canada has failed to innovate at all. And while free and democratic elections have arguably been the most important social development in the last 200 years in the entire world, Early adopters to democracy, like Canada, have not adapted or improvised to, change, to changing times and expectations, to social norms and technology. More concerning than that is that as the complexity of these issues continues to rise, for example, we realize that the intersection between poverty, crime, health, housing, uh, and so many other issues are interconnected our ability to respond to those challenges with political leadership seems to have diminished. And the need for transformative change 
has never been greater than it is right now. Consider for a moment the challenges associated with global warming worldwide. And consider whether or not we have stalled in our ability to tackle these things, particularly in Canada. That's not a comment about the, any particular political party because I think that we've stalled. All the parties are guilty of not moving quickly enough on this particular uh, matter. They seem to be handcuffed because I think we've stayed with a political design from 1867 that feels strangely like we're driving a Model T Ford. The only meaningful opportunity the public has to consistently participate is still just in elections. And most of the people we elect have little say. Unelected, well-intentioned political staff, usually in the office of the prime ministers, premiers, political leaders of all stripes, choreograph the questions, the answers, the talking points, and the speeches. I have a personal experience with that, which actually led to me returning from Ottawa and getting involved in politics. It was 2001. And after 9-11, I was asked, I was working in the Justice Department in Ottawa, and I was asked by the Associate Deputy Minister to move away from the subjects that I went to Ottawa to work on and to move to work on Canada's anti-terrorism legislation, something that I would, knew I would have mixed feelings about, Bill C-35. And... Uh, uh, a sort of SWAT team of um, criminal justice policy people were brought together to um, build a piece of legislation for the department and make sure that it made, made it through the legislature in lickety-split time. It was at the time that the Patriot Act was just recently passed in the United States. So we pulled this thing together. We were informed by international experts. And one of the jobs that I filled was that I was the... I was a courier or a resource for parliamentarians on the government side of the bench who were debating the topic. What I realized at the end was that I really was just a courier of speeches that we had written in the department for people to read on the House of the Legislature that any junior high kid in Canada would have been able to read without understanding anything about the work that they had done. About two days after I realized this, I went home to my wife and I told her about this opportunity to run for the leadership of the Liberal Party back in Nova Scotia and that the quality of the debate in public institution was clearly not at a level that it needed to be. And she knew after a, a, a stalled question on this matter in the spring of that year that I really meant it this time. And a month later, we were back in Halifax and I was in the middle of that race. As I became a politician, it was the first time that I had been involved in a political meeting of any uh, type as an adult, and I was running for the leadership of a major political party. <laughs> I was a neophyte. The most troubling things that occurred to me as I went through that uh, exercise really was about the hyperbole, the exaggerations, the theater that dominated the landscape, landscape of political discourse. Has anyone watched Question Period? Parties pretend that everything they say is the gospel and everything that the other side says is really from a comic book. Which led to my wake-up number two. Uh, Dr. Ham, uh, Premier Ham, in the spring of 2002, was announcing the uh, appointment of two new cabinet ministers in areas of the province where it was questionable about whether or not those seats were going to be won in the next election. So some of my advisors, particularly my caucus members, were advising me to go over there and slam the government for uh, playing politics by appointing cabinet ministers. But these were in the communities of Dartmouth that didn't have anyone at the executive table and in industrial Cape Breton where they didn't have anyone at the, um, uh, at the cabinet table. And so I went over and I listened to the appointment of these two ministers and I was scrummed by the media about what, uh, had just happened, and I chose to say that good for Dartmouth, good for North Sydney, and the people in industrial Cape Breton to have somebody around the table who um, is actually um, able to represent their interests when big decisions are being made. Two days later, one of my staff members uh, told me that someone from the press corps wanted to um, speak to me about the facts of life in politics. <laughs> They set up a meeting with this reporter 
um, it was a breakfast meeting where he said to me that there had already been discussion amongst the people in the political corps that they will stop reporting on me if I don't start getting more negative. So I did. I became more negative for a period of time. And what I realize in my experience in that is that it's superficial to attach the responsibility of the problems we have in politics to just to political leaders and to parties. It appears that this is the result of the action of many, many parties, including ourselves and the media, who feed on the theater of conflict and personality over and over. So this is everyone's problem. We've all caused it, and I think we all have a responsibility to change this Model T that we've been riding for so long. And it's more than just a look under the hood of this vehicle. What would happen if we engaged in a broad and deep conversation with Canadians about what we really want from our democracy? What do we want from our political parties? What do we want from our legislatures? What if we consider the best innovations from emerging democracies? Democratic renewal isn't a very sexy subject. I learned that the hard way. In the, in the fall of 2002, I came out with our party's first major political announcement. A few in the room might remember it. It was called Citizen-Centered Democracy. It was about realigning the relationship between government and citizens. It was about opening the doors to government and politics to allow citizens to have a central place in what was happening. It was met with scowls from the opposition and uh, even concern from the inside of our party. And people asked, why isn't he talking about roads or emergency rooms or auto insurance? That was my wake-up number three. Fortunately, as Stephanie mentioned, I've been involved with a citizen organization called Envision Nova Scotia, which is uh, concerned with engaging people in those questions and bringing citizens more to the center of what we're uh, trying to do. My view is that we need a redesign. And I think that par party discipline and the questions and the problems associated with it are the thin edge of a larger wedge. My primary concern about party discipline is that it's controlled by the prime minister's office and premier's offices and party leaders' offices. In some respects, I think it does serve a purpose, particularly when... Uh, the parties are voting, the, the elected members are voting on matters that actually have been part of party platforms and were the reason why that party is the governing party at the time. But its gross overuse is clearly distorted in a way that disempowers elected people. And ultimately, it disempowers you, the people who elected them. It happens at nominations at cabinet selection, at legislative voting, at committee work. In all of these systems, we need, the design rule, we, we need to design rules that limit the concentration of power of the people at the top of the food chain. We need to insist and recognize that however unsexy democratic renewal is, it's perhaps the most important political issue of our time. Thanks very much.